Hey, I'm Ethan. Before we kick off the show, I just want to let you know that this podcast is made possible in part because of support from listeners like you. Because you keep coming back to this show, I know that you're enjoying it. So support us. Put a couple of bucks in the tank. Make a contribution at ncpr.org slash give. And thanks. All right. On with the show. It got really bad. I went through the house and the cars and the half a million dollars. And for the longest time, I, I kept it a secret. No one knew. I would go out during the day, and I'd seem like a normal person. I'd go out on my boat. I'd hang out with my friends. But unlike them, when they would go home and sleep at night, I would go home and smoke crack, and I would stay awake. That was Derek Conway, live on stage at the Howell Grand Slam at Saranac Lake in 2017. And on today's episode, it's time for a wake-up call. From NCPR and the Adirondack Center for Writing, this is The Howl. True stories, no notes, told live on stage in the North Country. I'm Ethan Shanty. When your parents get sick and you're young, it can be really hard to know what to do. My sophomore year of college, my mom had a massive stroke, and it was debilitating not just for her, but it was also traumatic for our entire family. She was the rock that we all relied on. She was our caregiver, our financial advisor, our therapist. And then suddenly, she just couldn't be those things anymore. When we got the call that my mom was hospitalized and doctors weren't sure that she'd make it through the night, we rushed to Messina Memorial Hospital. We cried around her bedside while she was stuck with all kinds of tubes and monitors. There's that horrible, sterile smell that you only find in hospitals. With nothing to do but wait, we went home. I remember that my brothers and I got drunk in our living room. Looking back, you know, it wasn't a very responsible thing to do, but like I said, we were young. We didn't know the right way to do things or the right way to grieve. By the morning, Mom had stabilized, but it was very touch-and-go for a long time there. During that time, my dad barely left the hospital, and eventually Mom did wake up, but we didn't know if she knew who we were, and all that she could say was, bum, bum, bum. If she wanted water, she'd say, bum, bum. If she was in pain, the same thing. It became this all-encompassing cadence that I thought might drive me crazy. I thought, is this all that she'll be capable of forever? But slowly, very slowly, she got a little bit better. Eventually, she was able to move. She started to say our names. She knew where she was. And I remember one day, while she was making incremental progress, someone said, maybe she should be put in a long-term care facility. There was a pause, the air filled with tension. My dad said, no, she's coming home. So we built a wheelchair ramp at our house. We installed safety bars in the shower. We tried to make the house as accommodating as possible. But the thing that I haven't mentioned yet, my mom is probably the most stubborn person that I've ever met. And when she sets her mind to something, well, you just better get out of the way. In a few months' time, my mom was walking on her own again, She was putting together full sentences. In a year, she was even driving. She never did use that wheelchair ramp. But for all the progress that she made, I'll never forget those first few months when I'd go into her room at the hospital and not even be sure if she'd still be there. It's hard to know how you'll respond to a family tragedy. I'm thankful that I had a good support system at the time and was able to handle my mom's stroke in as healthy a way as possible. But today's story comes from Derek Conway, whose reaction to his mom's health problems led to his own issues and a big wake-up call. Here he is, live on stage at the Howell Grand Slam in Saranac Lake in 2017. In uh, 
1997, I was a primary caretaker for my mother, who at that point had had about 14 heart attacks. She would have heart attacks like, you know, we change our shirts. A couple of years prior, I had lost my father and my brother in the same year. This is what left me as the primary caretaker for her. And one night, I woke up. She had an alarm on her bed. Whenever she was having a problem, she would ring this alarm. And I heard it going off, and I came upstairs. Now, at the time, I was taking care of her during the day, and I'd hired someone to take care of her at night. Well, when I came up the stairs that night, the person I had hired to take care of her was asleep on my couch, for which I wanted to strangle her to death, but my, my mother needed me first. So I, I took care of my mother, and at that point, that was when I made the worst decision of my life, and that was that I wasn't going to sleep anymore. I just wasn't. It wasn't going to happen again. So, of course, how do you not sleep ever again? Drugs. <laughs> so... I started very, you know, mildly as everyone does. They don't think. They say, I have perfect self-control. I can just do a little bit of this particular thing, and it won't bother me. I can stop at any time I want. Well, in 97, she passed away, my mom, and all my life I had always just wanted to have money. You know, like just win the lottery or have a distant aunt leave me money or something, you know. Well, you got to be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. And that year, I got it. I inherited a half a million dollars when my mother passed. And it was great. I had a two-family house and a, a custom Tahoe and a boat. and a, I owned everything. I even had a monster truck. Okay, And it was great. I mean, in the beginning, you know, you're doing a little of this particular drug. And I would go out during the day, and I'd seem like a normal person. I'd go out on my boat. I'd hang out with my friends. But unlike them, when they would go home and sleep at night, I would go home and smoke crack. And I would stay awake. And sometimes I would stay awake for, well, they used to have those Glade 44-hour candles. One time I watched two of them burn, just to make sure that they would burn for 44 hours, like they said. And FYI, they do. Good product. So, but after 88 hours of being conscious with, you know, intermittent five-minute dozings off, and, you know, most of the time I would drop the remote from the TV out of my hand and wake me back up, um, you, you start getting a little crazy, not just from the drugs, but from the not sleeping. You know, I would hear people talking in the TV, and I could swear they were talking about me. Like, he, he's doing another one. Uh, we, we're coming up outside. You know, you get crazy. You get paranoid. And uh, it got really bad. I went through the house and the cars and the half a million dollars. And for the longest time, I, I kept it a secret. No one knew. I mean, all my closest friends didn't know. I would go to weddings. I would, you know, go all over the place, and they just didn't know. They didn't know that every other minute that I wasn't in their view, I was doing this particular drug. It got to the point where one day I, was, uh, I had woke up from a short nap, and I couldn't open my eyes. I mean, they just wouldn't open. I could pull them open, but as soon as I let go, they'd shot. I couldn't get myself to come conscious. And so I opened my eye and I put some of the drug on, on my pipe. And as I started smoking it, my eyes opened like automatic shutters. And I thought, 
you've got a little bit of a problem. <laughs> and then, of course, I, when I lost the house was when finally people started finding out because I had to do it somewhere other than my home. Most people attributed it prior to that to depression. I had lost my, my family all in three years. I had had a debilitating accident at work where I couldn't work anymore. So they just didn't really think it was anything serious. And then I started having to do things more in public. And that's when people started finding out. And I'll tell you, you really know who your real friends are when that happens. Because a lot of my longtime friends who I really thought I could count on just turned their back on me. I had one particular person that I had lent $20,000 to him and his wife to start a business. And, you know, they were paying me pretty regularly. And then when they found out about that, they decided, well, he's not worthy of our money anymore. I know he lent it to us, but we're not going to pay him back. And they just stopped paying me. And I thought, wouldn't that be nice if you could do that with, like, your mortgage? (laughs) The bank I'm working with doesn't do the proper things with its money. I'm just not going to pay my mortgage anymore. But uh, so they they stopped paying me, and um, it it came to a point where I just, I only had a few friends. They were people I would not ever have associated with before that. I will not associate now. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's something, if you think someone has this problem, talk to them. I don't know if they'll listen, but if they do come out of it, they'll really appreciate that you tried. Because no one in my life tried. And finally, it came to the event that saved my life. And that was a heart attack. And to this day, I thank God every day for that heart attack. Because without it, I don't know where I'd be. And I've spoken to some people who've had this addiction. And they've told me, oh yeah, I had a heart attack. And then, you know, they. I said, but... I've seen you high. And they go, oh, yeah, well, I didn't do it for a couple of months. And I said, well, okay, you didn't have the heart attack I had, okay, because I, like, you know, saw God and the white light, and, I, you know, I don't know why anyone would ever try and do that again. So um, talk to these people and, and, you know, thank God that I had that heart attack, and it, it truly saved my life, and it taught me now that the people who are in my life now, I don't have anything to give them. You know, I, I've spent all my money. I've spent everything. I'm on a fixed income because of the accident at work. So the people who are in my life now, they're only there because they want to be my friend. And those people are the... Sorry. Those people are the most important people in your life. The ones who don't want anything from you. That just want to be around you because of who you are, and cherish those people. Thank you. Conway, live on stage at the Howell Grand Slam in Saranac Lake in 2017. Derek's story has had me thinking a lot about my mom and her time in the hospital after her stroke. There was a time there when I thought I'd never be able to have a conversation with my mom again. But one day we were in her room and her nurses were going over the physical therapy that she had scheduled for the next day and how it might be rough on her. And she looked at me and she said, c'est la vie. And then I knew we were on the upswing. That's it for this episode of The Howl. Make sure you follow the show so you never miss an episode and hear all of our stories and find out when we're going to be on stage in your hometown by visiting ncpr.org howl. Coming up on next week's episode of The Howl, the perils of being famous in Costa Rica. 
In Costa Rica, anybody can volunteer to be the rodeo clown. And an older uh, Costa Rican park worker looked at me and my friend, who was also in his 20s, and he said, you've got to promise you won't go in the ring. And we promised. Um, but you can kind of see where this is going. <laughs> the Howl Podcast is a co-production of NCPR and the Adirondack Center for Writing. The show is written, edited, produced, and hosted by me. I'm Ethan Shanty. We have editorial supervision by news director David Summerstein. Doyle Dean is our production manager. Bill Hanel handles our digital stuff. And Caitlin Kelly is our social media specialist. Our theme music on every episode is by famous letter writer of Plattsburgh. Like radio, I'm Ethan Shanty. This is NCPR. <laughs>